with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. I am your host, Scott J. Allen, and this is Phrenesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. Now, I am a professor of management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. In addition, I'm a husband and father of three teens. Now, this is a family endeavor. Will played the intro, Kate voiced the intro, and who knows, you may hear from Emily a little later. I'm also an author, entrepreneur, speaker, and co-founder of the Collegiate Leadership Competition. I love to travel, explore new places with family, and learn from others. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion about all things leadership and followership, if we're honest. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. I am proud to share a few updates. According to Listen Notes, Phronesis is listed as among the top 3% of podcasts in the world because of you. So thank you. In addition, the podcast has two sponsors. First, Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ila-net.org. My second sponsor is the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. At Bowler, we offer several advanced degrees and MBAs, and I'm confident that there's one that will fit your location, interests, and timeline. In fact, our online MBA is ranked as the number one in Ohio and number nine in the United States. We offer international study tours, a contemporary and forward-looking curriculum, and access to senior leaders and flagship organizations. Learn more at business.jcu.edu. You can find links to both sponsors in the show notes. Now, if you like what we're up to, please hit subscribe so you can stay current as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others, friends, colleagues, leaders, teams, students, and others you think will benefit. And now, today's show. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening. Welcome to the Phrenesis podcast. This is a special episode. We have some incredible thinkers with us today. And and actually, it's the first time I have a co-host. So Dave Rush from the University of Illinois is going to be co-hosting with this episode. He's going to jump in, ask questions, because I said, hey, I need someone to help be on the balcony and swoop in and ask a better question than I just did. So Dave, thank you for being here, sir. Very excited. Thanks for the invite, Scott. Okay. I am going to place their bios in the show notes because we want to jump in right away and get to as much conversation as we can. Uh, Today, we have Carl Kuhnert and we have Keith Eigel, and they have written a book released a few years back called The Map. And uh, this is, I think, both of theirs, a large chunk of their life's work. As I was perusing Keith's dissertation this morning, and as I was reviewing again, this article from what, 1987, Carl? That, yes. Uh, <laughs> you probably started writing that in 86. So I'm, you know, let's start there. So we're going to go, we're going to go to this really fun place. We're going to put a whole bunch of resources in the show notes so you can catch up. Uh, Carl, maybe you can take us back to the story of how at a very, in a very quick span, you take this work from Bob Keegan at yeah. Harvard and apply it to leadership. And so would you be willing to share that story of the genesis of some of that thinking? Because it was brilliant. It was in the throes of transformational and transactional leadership that was just really kind of revving up that literature base. And would you tell us that story, sir? Sure. 
Well, this this really came about as a result of, of playing with a colleague of mine who uh, at the time was actually beating me in tennis. And uh, it was really hot. And um, I wasn't sure exactly whether I was going to be able to make it through the match. And so we, we took a break and I, I basically was stalling for time here. And, uh, <laughs> and so I asked him, what are you reading? <laughs> and he, he mentioned Bob's book. And I said, tell me more. You know, I was, I couldn't, you know, I was still trying to catch my breath. And he talked, he told me about this book and I said, that sounds really interesting. And so uh, that was really the beginning of it. And what really fueled this was for me, two things. One is I had taken a class in graduate school in leadership and I, I couldn't imagine a subject that was more interesting, but somehow science made it more boring. Mm. Um, than it really needed to be. And, and, you know, in, in reading, reading, you know, Bob's book, it, it really was clear to me that what we, what we really needed to be doing was thinking about leadership growth really across the lifespan. Mm. And this was the first book for me that really grabbed me and said, Hey, listen, there is a trajectory here. Yeah. There is a way in which we make sense of the world. And we do so as we grow, we become, right? We, we become more actually of who we really are. Hmm. And this book was really uh, instrumental in my thinking, obviously. And I said, man, here's this idea out here on transactional transformational leadership. And, and, and that's what it was. How can I put this? How can I take these ideas, which for, for most of you know, the way we've talked about leadership are these static constructs, whether it's personality, and they're static. Well, how do we how do we put this into motion? How do we move from th- this idea that leadership is something that we do that we say rather than who we are? And so those those really gave birth to that article. Which, by the way, I have to tell you, I couldn't believe it got accepted. <laughs> I mean, the reviews the reviews were horrible. Oh, really? Um, Reviewer number two didn't like it. Oh no, the the the. <laughs> And what happened was that, I mean, literally what happened is the editor put his arm around me and says, this is really good, Carl. You, you, this is a good paper. I'm going to, I'm going to publish it. Awesome. So the, the reviews were terrible and yet the, the editor took a chance and it's still, by the way, this is, I, I just can't believe this, but it, I get probably, I get about, I get about 15 to 20 hits a week of people wow. reading it still. And Keith, you come along. And tell us a little bit of that story. So, so how do you get engaged in this work then? And, and, and what was the spark for you that really intrigued you in, in all of this? Oh, the guy who just got through speaking was the spark. I mean, how, <laughs> how lucky was I? I was a non-traditional, what I like to refer to as a non-traditional graduate student. I didn't start graduate school until I was 30. Awesome. Carl was a relatively young professor, had just come over from Auburn, where he and Lewis did that work, and um, came to University of Georgia. They somehow let me into this program. I was really focused on kind of teams and diversity, and Carl just said, "You, hey, you got to read this book. You know, I've talked about this in other venues, but it, the, the, I've never had any one thing like that change the course of my life in, in such a significant way. Because to me, you know, Carl had the wisdom to just sort of hand me the book and not give me all of his perspective on it. He just said, read this, right? And 
this constructive developmental theory and the way Keegan put it forward in The Evolving Self made sense of everyone that I admired, um, who I really respected, who had had significant influence in my life. It shed new light on why they were the way they were. And as Carl just said, it wasn't the things they did. They were all so different. It was who they it was who they were and how they, and how they made sense of the world. And and at the highest levels, what a generative perspective they had with me. And, and Carl was was one of those key players. And so I kind of shifted the effort of my research and my studies and my coursework and the things that I was trying to do. And Carl was my major professor. But given that the gap in our ages was not that gigantic, we became, I mean, Carl, you can double check me on this, but we became great friends. And uh, it was a little, it, it was a little weird for a while because it was the kind of friendship where one friend can give the other friend an F. Yeah. <laughs> right. But that can't be reciprocated. So, <laughs> um, and so, and so that's it. When I got out, I did not, I, I knew coming into graduate school, school, I did not want to take um, an academic route. What moved me was making a difference in people's lives. And, and it was quite a journey, but Carl and I began to author a curriculum in 1996 was really our first application with the food science and technology faculty at the University of Georgia, that was an exciting group. And, um, and, and we created this way to try and move a group of people along this developmental journey in the way that we had both, I think, had some luck in more one-on-one kind of what we would think of now as more of a coaching relationship. But could we scale that up into having an impact on people and 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 since then Carl and I have had the privilege and the honor to be involved with I don't know Carl th- thousands and thousands of of people who have had exposure now to this developmental journey and and the and the role of difficulty and challenge in their lives and how that fuels growth and and um so that's a longer than you may have wanted, but that's a pretty short version of kind of my story and integration into this. I, I thought maybe you were going to say thousands and thousands of food scientists at this point. <laughs> <laughs> we have literally worked with tens of thousands. <laughs> Dave, you want to jump in? Any questions for you, sir, right I, now? I would love to. And, and, and you're you're talking to a guy who first read Keegan's uh, The Mental Demands of Modern yeah, Life, yeah. whose life my, myself w- was changed so much, I ended up reading a passage of it at my sister's wedding as part of wedding <laughs> advice for her and her, her new husband. So yes, that's I, a I, new I, level of geekdom, yes, everyone. I, I, hear, I hear what both of you are saying. <laughs> and Keith, you, you, you bring up the point of going to a group of people, and, and in this case, food, food science and technologists in it here where I work at the University of Illinois, those exact folks just work up two floors above me uh, here in my academic building. So I, I know these people. When you come in and you, you make the message that who you are, your inner self is potentially even more important than what you do. What you know is less important than who you are. How does that message get received? Uh, I mean, in varied ways, right? I mean, there is a lot of crossed arms in the beginning. Um, Like, you're going to have to prove this to me. I think there are others who begin to 
it begins to intersect with their journeys the way they understand it so immediately that they are bought in and wanting to learn more. But I, I don't think, you know, it used to take us a lot longer to teach this than it does now, but it's still a couple of hours to kind of initially lay it out for a group. And then, but the points of application are so broad that people start shifting their, their thinking about what they bring to the table and how they bring it to the table. The development of people, when we talk about it, we've been calling it vertical development for a while because constructive developmental theory has a harder time connecting with people. But but we contrast it to lateral development, kind of the things that we know. And we talk about how important the things that we know are. They get us into the game, whatever game that we're playing, whatever industry that we're a part of. But they're a hurdle to entry. They're not the distinguishing factor, right? They're not the thing that separates the people that have huge influence from people who don't. And, and I think people start to make those connections. Carl, I'd love to hear what your, what your thoughts are on and what I just said and what you, how you might build on that or add to it or, or contradict it even. No, the thing that uh, surprises me, and we've seen some people really uh, over a course of our program, which, which in many cases is a, a number of months, six months or something like that, we've seen some remarkable changes. But when we talk with them afterwards and you know, they're thanking us for the, for the work that we've done, it was clear uh, that they were ready to hear some sort of message. Right. You're not going to get anybody in our program. I mean, we're not expecting anybody to change if they come into the program, as as Keith said, because it's so it's so obvious. You know, they're like their arms are closed and they didn't really want to be here. Anyhow, we don't have much in the way of success with them. But, you know, we we tend to be dealing with with people who are, you know, in organizations that are, if you will, growth oriented. I mean, those are those are the the people that come to our work. And so they're anxious to see how they can grow and how they can be more effective. You, you all have something in the book, the map, that is an important statement. And it's a statement that we are working to build the case in this paper that we're working on. And the passage goes like this. The higher the level of vertical development, the more effective you are in all aspects of life and leadership. In fact, no single factor better predicts your effectiveness than where you are on your vertical journey. I'd love to hear the two of you talk about that statement because it's something we're putting forward. The, the, the article is going to be titled tentatively from mission statements to mission critical because we have a lot of colleges of business out there with leadership in their mission statement, but they aren't necessarily taking that work incredibly seriously. And it's getting more and more critical that we really do develop individuals who are on that vertical trajectory and on that horizontal trajectory of the lateral Absolutely. development. Absolutely. But that's our, that's our core thesis, right? From mission statements, just words, slogans, to actually truly taking this seriously and doing this work and helping people begin on that trajectory. Carl, you want to go first? You want me to? I've got, yeah. it's a, such a fun question, Scott. Yeah, it is. And I think I want to take the second part of Scott's uh, question to us. And once you once you take this first part, Keith. Okay, and, the, and the, I don't remember what I asked. So. Scott, but the, <laughs> so 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 how do how do how do we defend kind of the boldness of that statement in a way? Yes. And it, it's it's interesting. My dissertation work, which was the beginning of this journey for me, really was was looking at what everybody said about what made 
leaders effective. And so much of it was knowledge, skill, and ability related. And when we look at almost any knowledge, skill, or ability, it's normally distributed. You can sort of measure people on a scale within their community or against the larger population or however you might do that. And one of the things that we began noticing, and then one of the things that we looked at in the in the research was that any of these knowledge, skills, and abilities, while they are a hurdle to entry into whatever you're doing, they don't really distinguish effectiveness based on uh, follower ratings, based on life satisfaction variables. You, you know, you can be any personality type. And by the way, we teach personality because we think it's a great way to challenge people's vertical understanding, hmm. right? But it's but but not saying everybody needs to be more of this type in these situations or anything like that. So, you know, the thing that we kind of got lucky on, or I feel like I got lucky on, is that I just played this kind of humble graduate student role. And I wrote all of these letters to these CEOs that met a really specific criteria and asked them if they would allow me to do basically a subject object interview on them, a constructive development or interview on them. And would they give me someone else from their organization who, and they never told these people this, who looked like they had all the talent in the world to keep achieving all the pieces were there, but for some reason they kind of hit a ceiling. And so what I did is I, is I started associating in multiple different ways, things that characterize higher levels on the journey with a more global level of leadership effectiveness and the and the data just was overwhelmingly powerful in yeah. terms of people at the highest levels not just positionally but that that their effectiveness had been validated in a way by either a a board of directors or their tenure or their ranking in the industry or all they had to meet several gigantic criteria for me to even send them a letter. And then I sent 75 letters out and 25 of them said yes, which was totally amazing. And they each gave me at least one person to interview beyond that. And so the conclusion we drew is that as long as the knowledge, skills, and abilities gets you into the area of that you're operating, the thing that predicted your effectiveness as a leader, and then when we tied this to other variables over time, yeah. Um, life satisfaction variables. And Dave, back to your, you know, your introduction to Keegan, um, you you said the mental demands of modern life, but the opening title of that book is In Over Our Heads. Yes. Right. right? And when you begin looking at people who feel in over their heads, it is a vertical development problem. It's a leader levels problem. It's that something is being asked of me that's greater than my ability to construct or make sense of the world. And, and so I feel burnt out or I feel under stress or I feel panicked or I don't know what to do or I'm I'm checking with everybody else which way the wind is blowing or what are they going to think of me or will my boss be happy with this or, you know, all of these things. And as people move into a more self-authored, what we call level four, but but I think most people are using the word self-authoring now. A few, a few people are not, but the, but, most people are using self-authored. There is a groundedness and an effectiveness that comes out of those higher levels of leadership. And yet there's a large percentage of the population that is still stuck in this area where they're too concerned about the outside in things in their world. 
That's great. So, Carl, I didn't, was that, hey, Carl, was that the first half of the question? <laughs> I don't know either, Carl, well, so you're going to have to let us know. <laughs> well, well, Scott, you, you kind of ended in a really interesting place for me. And it was actually, actually more interesting than the first part of that question, which was actually what you're working on, which okay. is this idea of moving from mission statements to mission critical. One of the things that, you know, we, we talk about and the way we think about doing our programs is is this distinction between knowing that and knowing how. And the mistake, I think, that we make in education, and I'll expand, expand this to more than the, than the way Keith and I operate in our programs, is that we spend a lot of time, and I'll use a, a metaphor here of a bike, right? And what happens is we spend all our time in education describing the bike. <laughs> you know, we can spend weeks on the gears. Yes. Uh, the, the history metal. of That's the bike. A, uh, oh my gosh. We have to do the history of the bike. Did you yes. know that? And then we know we have, we have eras, we have epochs, right. Of, of, of time in which we, we use bike and we used it That's more, true. we used it less. And, and, you know, we talk about racing bikes. We can talk, you know, we talk about tricycles. I mean, look, we're yes. on, we're on the knowledge of the bike. We know that what we end up not doing so much as what we should is knowing how yes. to ride that bike. And the interesting thing is you will never get to knowing how, right? You will never, I'm sorry, you will never get to knowing actually all of that unless you actually ride the bike Yeah, because you can't teach balance, right? No, you can't teach it. You have to ride the bike. And so, so much of what we do is not so much create a curriculum around concepts. It's around them yeah. <laughs> and where they are. So they're riding the bike and, and, you know, we know, right. We know that to ride a bike, you have to fall. You can't, you can't learn to ride a bike unless you fall. And more than likely you're going to skin your knee and it's going to hurt. And this was, and one of the really great books on what I'm just talking about here is uh, Richard Rohr, R-O-H-R. And he talks about growing by falling down. And one of the things that um, I think Keith and I would agree on is that, Growth doesn't happen so much because you want it to happen. It's because something usually isn't working. Mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You made the same mistake about three or four times, right? And we see we see actually a great deal of development uh, of with people who, who uh, either get fired or lose their jobs. And that was a time for them to think about things maybe differently. And I almost uh, your 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 example right there. You know, we could we could have a really fun conversation, armchair armchairing Steve Jobs, but him exiting Apple and then re-entering yeah, Apple, absolutely. there was a shift. There was a shift in who he became when he re-entered Apple than than when he was fired. Would you all at least agree yeah. that that? Yeah. In fact, there's the you know there's uh, literature on this very topic, probably in the seventies, where the, where they talked about all leaders are twice born. Hmm. Yeah, is that Zelesnik? Yeah, that was Zelesnik. Yes. That was Zelesnik. Abraham Zelesnik. Wow. But no, but it's, it's this good job. <laughs> that was in some random spot back here. In the that was good. I, you know, corner, I, right? I went there. I went there to my mind, and I went. I'm not going to get this. Um, you know, thank I read you Zelesnik at my wedding. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> uh, and so and so that's the, that's the point of this and it's it's kind of interesting I, I thought i thought that you know after reading keegan 
or after listening to Keegan this past week. Yes. He realizes, I mean, look, we, we're all at this place now where it's very easy to talk about these levels of development and have people think, oh, this is not that hard. <laughs> I, I jokingly remind people that just because they can read the slide doesn't mean they're at level five. <laughs> but, but but what happens, what happens is, you know, we're all in some ways, most of us are in transition between levels. And oh, by the way, that's where life is. <laughs> yeah. Because guess what? You know, if we're if we're if we're at a level and we're comfortable and we're stuck, and there's not a whole lot of growth going on. And the real growth happens in the transitions. All we need to do to move from mission statements to mission critical is start firing people, right? <laughs> that'll, that'll grow them up. <laughs> that'll grow them up. <laughs> That's, I mean, what Carl's getting at, and I'm obviously being funny, but the, but it is the challenges that fuel growth. And those challenges a lot of times are hard and difficult and a lot of times have negative or collateral damage to them, Right. But there's also when you start to wrap your arms around the principles of challenge, you can recognize that some of the high points of your life, getting married, having children, getting promoted, finishing a degree, when you really start to evaluate what made those so profound in your growth and your development, it was the fact that they were challenging. They challenged the way you understood the world in the same way a firing can. And when you get your arms around that, you can begin to recognize that there are challenges in our life everywhere. There's a rub with a colleague, right? That is so easy to just sweep under the rug, or there is a, a thing that you don't fully understand or don't know how to do. Those are challenges we can engage in that can grow us that don't have the same kind of collateral damage. Um, and you also say something in the book that's very, very wise, and it gets to, well, you know, the whole challenging life experiences accelerate or or they can arrest development. We hunker down. We don't confront. We don't seek out resources. We don't go for assistance and help. And it causes us to entrench. Would you agree maybe even at times deeper into where we are as a self-protective response? Uh, what do you, how do you all think about that? Uh, I mean, I've interviewed so many people who are, are entrenched to the point of intractability, I think. I mean, there are people who have stopped growing at level two, and, and usually they have a story that makes that that thing make sense, right? There, there's where, where I, I we mentioned this in the book, but their teenage years were not about growth; they were about survival, right? And survival is a very me-focused thing. And uh, but but yeah, you know we're you can see people that are entrenched at any place along the journey mm -hmm. and their ability to hold the challenge that can should grow them to hold that growth at bay. It depends and it's complex. And well, we've got ideas about it. I don't think we've really put our, like there's no magic. You, you can point to the thing and put your finger on it and be, and be done with it. But where it is hardest, I think are, you know, you've got sort of in constructive developmental model, you've got the more independent stages of growth of two and four, and you've got the more integrated stages of growth at three and five. And we call it socialized. And then and then Bob is now using the word self-transforming for five. But Carl and I have always found that the names are more limiting than the numbers. You can be stuck at almost any place along that journey with perhaps the exception of five, right? But it's interesting how 
overtly narcissistic getting stuck at level two is, how overtly blamey getting stuck at level three is. It, increasingly, things are not your fault, uh, right? To the point of almost absurdity. And at level four, stuckness, and this is, I, I use this a lot, it cracks people up, but it's it's this idea of all of us have met cranky old people mm-hmm. that start most of their sentences with, well, in my generation, right? And they're, and they're in that self-authored construction, but it has gotten narrower and smaller as the world. And at level four, I think it's the easiest place to stop because usually if you made it to level four, you have resources and success that allow you to just create a, a bubble around your the, the the need to grow. You can hold it at bay by just running out to the golf course or down to the wine cellar or off on vacation, you know? So again, I, I don't know if that, <laughs> I have a tendency to over answer questions, Scott. So just raise your hand and rein me in. No, no you're good. You're all good. Dave. We yeah. Have well, and, and what I'm thinking about listening to the two of you talk is that the central theme of challenge and being able to put people in challenge. And I'm, and I'm thinking about the context of education and where we have, we have students in classrooms and on our college campuses and in our, in our high schools getting involved and engaged. And, and I think we as educators have the, the privilege and honor of being able to engineer challenge in a lot of different ways. What we don't necessarily have the ability to do is fire our students or put them in situations where we, we know they're going to they're gonna skin their knees in a serious way, to use Carl's analogy. What I'm thinking about, and I, I would love some insight if, you, if the two of you have thoughts about this, is, is wh- where do we find the balance of being able to challenge and rock students to increase the chances that they're, gonna, they're, they're going to transform and, and, and begin to become more mature and vertically developed, while, while also creating as little collateral damage as possible? Yeah, Carl, your world, my friend. I defer immediately on this because you've—he's got some stories that are fantastic. Carl has fired students before. Is that the idea? <laughs> and they've come back to uh, thank me later. Um, <laughs> hey, no, it, that's a great—that's uh, really a great question, David. I really appreciate that, and I'm going to answer it this way is that I think the most important thing that we can do as I'm going to say this as parents, right? We can do this as teachers too, but I think what we need to do is make sure that we allow our children uh, to make mistakes, to make errors, to not take the challenge of dealing with that. Those interpersonal squabbles, you know, in eighth grade, you know, I I have a couple of daughters. I know what this is like. And, and not fixing the problem. And it's really interesting. And I actually, I actually had this woman put up her hand and said, does that mean I should stop helping my teenage daughter do her homework? And I went, oh my gosh, said that. I mean, the, whole, the, the, the group went, oh, I mean, they kind of went, oh, really? Is that what you're saying? And I was like, okay, okay. And to understand the, the problem here was really about how she understood what love meant. For her, love meant taking care of your kids, making sure they don't have a bad experience. They don't skin their knee. They don't skin their knee. They don't learn balance. And we see this, by the way, I mean, this is now, you know, it's part of our, everybody gets a trophy kind of thing. You know, we, we hear a lot about that, but we don't really understand the fact that these kids actually need to experience these kinds of losses. Because what's going to happen is, I mean, that's our job as parents, 
is to help them make sense of the loss, not to try to prevent the loss. Yes. Now, uh, right. But, but again, I, I'm, when I, I have to always be careful here. I'm not saying that you don't scream at your kid if they're running out on the street, in a, you know, busy street. I mean, that, that, that's, that's, that's different. But I'm talking about day-to-day living and not going all out to make sure that your daughter gets the lead role in the high school play and, and trying to make that right for her. And so this is this idea. I mean, can can love be can love be more about being there for your kids, challenging them, but know that you always got their back. But but again, I I'll challenge I'll challenge every teacher here on this one is that you have to meet people where they are. And I, I mean, I've had you know, and this is a bit very, very interesting for me because I've really had to, I have to change my curriculum when I teach in class depending on who I'm teaching. And so it's it's and it's a great word. Um, I came across recently that I love. It's called attunement, which is essentially meeting people where they are. Hmm. But I think if we really want to make a difference in, in, in our coaching lives and in our leadership lives and in our daily lives is to really go as far as we can to really understand what someone else is saying. And I can go even farther here and talk about cognitive empathy, not necessarily not necessarily emotional empathy, but actually being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes yeah. and understand where they're coming from. Keith, you wanted to jump in, sir. Yeah. You know, I've had the privilege of working with a lot of faculty and administrative leaders in higher ed and then over 150 teachers over a decade-long period at the biggest independent school in the United in continental United States that happens to be located here in Atlanta. I think part of the, you know, teachers are playing an incredibly important role in the knowledge, skill, and ability development of people, right? But you also have such a unique insight. And this is, you know, I'm a father of four. I think I might have just said that. But the, so I think there is, and this is me watching Carl as well a lot and hearing his stories. But when the challenges come up for a student that are bumping up against the way they're making sense of the world, the deal is not to give them advice that fixes the challenge, but give them advice on how to lean into the challenge in increasingly effective ways. Yeah. Carl, I thought for sure you were going to tell the milk and my roommate story, oh, yeah. right? It gave an indication of how to meet this person where they were, because what they were struggling with is that their roommate, Carl, check me if I'm wrong, but was drinking their milk. And should I call my parents? Wow. Right. I mean, am I getting it close to right, Carl? Yeah, no, this is this. That's it. That's it. This is a this is the first week of school. And this was a dad who called me. The dad calls me and says, my daughter just started UGA. I mean, she's a national merit winner. Very smart. I mean, very talented. Very, you know, what happened was, you know, she's in school the first week and she calls home and says, dad, my roommate drank all the milk. What should I do? Yeah. And, you know, the, the dad, dad response to me was gracious. Did I screw this up? You know, uh, and, and so he's, yeah, he's all concerned now. About yes. The, <laughs> yeah. the short answer is yes, of course. But, if, but, but the, the better, the best part of this, right. And this is a, this is actually a big, the thing was that he took care of everything for her. Yeah. They had the biggest house, the 90 square foot TV, the pool, the refrigerator full of soft drinks, never had to make a friend in her life because everybody wanted to come to their house. And now the littlest thing that yep. most people will not even think about derails her. Yeah. She's right? not equipped, right? There's no, no resilience, right? This is what happens. 
And I have to, this is, this, this happened just recently. And I just got to tell this story. So it was so profound when he told this to me, this was a, a group I was working with at UCLA. And I like going there because I always get different people <laughs> that I get in the Southeast. And so I, there's a movie director and I'm talking about leader levels. I'm talking about this stuff. And he comes up to me and he says, Hey, Carl, I says, listen, he says, I've been working, you know, as a director for, for 25 years. And he says, you know, what I know is true is that when any one of my people, hit stardom, they stop growing. Wow. Wow. He says, That's the way they remind, they remind, they remain for the next 15, 20 years. They're the same person because they got stuck. It's all the fame. It's all the glory. It's all the, everything they want, they can do. Everybody, you know, loves them. And then, so what happens is in 10 years, they're in Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, mm. because they can't now handle life without that particular environment. That they're yeah. living in, and we see this all the time. We see this with athletes. I mean, again, it goes on and on and on. But this is this is the power of getting comfortable and getting comfortable in a way that ultimately doesn't serve your growth and the consequences that follow. Yeah, it reinforces the homeostasis, right? It reinforces sorry, that hold that that holding environment. One more thing for for people in higher education, I think one of the things that and, and this may be true for. Maybe a handful of juniors in high school, a few more seniors in high school, but certainly in higher education, is this idea of meeting people where they are. is very. It's a very complicated role for the teacher to play yeah. because you've got the girl who doesn't know what to do with her roommate drinking her milk, yep. and you've got kids who have grown up in broken homes that have made incredible sense of this. And they're actually moving out of three into four. They're, they're beginning that journey of who they're going to be, or maybe they were bullied, or maybe they, maybe they had to figure stuff out because of the challenge in their lives that other kids didn't have to figure out. And so what does it mean to set up an environment where you're allowing challenges to emerge, but not allowing someone to drown Yes. In the challenges when one person, there's no chance of drowning. Yep. But the other person could go straight to the bottom of the pool. Right. And, and that I have the, the role of teachers as mentors on the vertical journey is so critical. And I and most of the higher educators that I have worked with, I think, get that in theory. But they don't They like, well, what am I supposed to do about that? Right. And so they allow a lot of kids, they put challenges in front of them that are way beyond their stage of development, their level of development. Or, or not enough. Uh, they make it too easy. Or not enough. Thank uh, you, Dave. Good. Yeah. Good. Thank you. That's good. Dave, we're, we are short on time. Do you have another question you want to jump in with? Or would you like me to start? And then you ask, you ask the last question. How would you like yeah, to Yeah. Uh, go ahead, Scott. Yeah. Okay. Since writing the map, and we're going to have links to everything in the show notes so that people can access those resources, what are some recent insights that, that the two of you have had as you think about this work? Because what I love, Keith, is that, and both of you are actually in the field working to see if this can be operationalized. You are practicing and you are learning and you're in this wonderful space of experimentation. Are there some insights that you've had recently that stand out for you? I can either one. I'm, I'm ready. Go, go. I've got, I've got something that I've been thinking about a lot recently that I think is the thing that's hitting me, but you go. Yeah, you start. This is the same thing, Keith. I, this is where I kind of, I am. This is something that's really been 
really been on my mind. And it's again, it's it's uh it's very recent. I'm always I spend I spend a lot of time thinking about you know our stuckness, right? <laughs> what keeps us in place. And I, I I don't know where this came from, but it feels like that we are we are biased. I'm gonna say this in a general sense, maybe in the human sense, that we are biased to preserve our own rightness, right? And the reason I know that's true is because it's why it's so difficult to forgive someone, because we're right. And I'm I'm wondering recently if we were able to forgive more easily. And a lot of this is is, is pretty uh, pretty powerful stuff. But I think if we were be able to forgive more easily, there would be more self doubt in us. Interesting. And I think that opens up. I think that self doubt actually opens up avenues, new avenues for us that we won't see because we're so concerned about our own ego <laughs> and, and, and being right. And as I look around and I'll say this and I'll let, I'll let Keith go here, but, but I think, I mean, how many, how many mistakes get made in companies by people who have to be right? You know, I think it's, I think it's one of these areas where I would like to explore this idea of, are we willing to give up the right to be right? And what would that look like? If we could be a little more curious, if we could be a little bit more less demanding, <laughs> yeah, less, less sure of ourselves. And again, you think about the think of the think of the curriculum we have right now in the world. I mean, and where we're living right now, the curriculum is unbelievable. You don't need a class. I mean, yeah. we're living it. You know, whether it's the pandemic, you know, whether it's social justice, you know, we can go on and on and on. Whether it's technology, you know, what's going on with with AI and ethics, and we can go on and on and on. And this is the time when we really do need to be open, yeah, to what's going on. Bob's book about you know the mental demands have never been higher, yeah, for all of us. And so I'm starting to get on my soapbox here. So I'll let Keith go. It's an important box. It's an important box. What I'm going to say is going to sound so much less deep than what Carl just said when he went to forgiveness. For me, I, I think when we wrote the book and and really my understanding leading up to that, obviously, because that's what got expressed there, is that this idea of we're never not ourselves, I put a narrower range of kind of understanding on the developmental journey where we kind of had our position and maybe within a fifth of a stage going either direction kind of categorized most of who we are. Yeah. Um, most of our experience, I think, especially in a series of coaching relationships, I've been engaging in with people who fully for moving in the direction of five really aggressive learners, growers wanting to lean in. I have been surprised at how many, how wide that range may be around kind of our center of what, what Nancy Pop, who worked with Keegan, called our center of gravity. Okay. Right, right. That if we were going to score somebody, we'd say their center of gravity is kind of a, a three parens four or, or, or you, you, whatever nomenclature you want to use, but w- within, within a range. But in a number of these coaching relationships, seeing things almost emerge from unevaluated childhood family kinds of things that were really level three could even at times be kind of self-focused all the way up to a magnanimousness and a, and a, and a wisdom that is so far beyond 
where they are in these moments. And again, I, it's, there probably is somewhat of a bell curve that forms around these things. But we should not be surprised when things that we thought we were well past rear their head. Hmm. We should not be derailed by that. We should embrace it and say, wow, how lucky am I to have stumbled on this thing yeah. in my life that I have not stumbled on before. And so I think that's the thing maybe that struck me a little bit over the last few years Yeah, is that this, this range of experience that fuels this growth is, is wider, mm. I think, than I thought. I haven't put any research around that yet, but but the anecdotal stuff doesn't lie a lot of times, right? Yeah. Dave? Yeah, I, this is less a, a, this is a, a Dave, question. This is the last question. So well, yeah, really, well, as co-hosts, yeah. we need to end on a very, I don't know, I'm just thinking like the end of William Tell Overture where the drums are all just. Right, you know, right. So just, but the, you know, the, the symbols are coming out. Wrap yeah. it up in a bow, maybe. Well, it, it, it's just so. Dave, it, how do you it, deal with pressure? Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> the, the level two co-host. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, 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 and to that to that point, Scott, I don't even have a question. I like I, I'm 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 just reflecting, I guess, more than anything else about how a, a common theme of what we've talked about is is the need to have challenge in our life and people in our lives who could challenge us while also not doing that where they're always poking at us, causing us to create thicker skin, but doing that in supportive ways to get us to open our eyes, because it's about opening our eyes. That's that's the important part to, to the vertical growth that, that Carl and Keith were talking about. So I, I have let, it's less of a question than, it seems like that's what we've been talking a lot about. You did it, man. You wrapped it up in a bow. That was wonderful. And the only other thing I would, would kind of contribute to that would be this I forget the phrasing Vale used, but in this book by John Wergen that that I was talking about a little bit with everyone before the, the, the show began, Deep Learning in a Disorienting World, he talks about uh, kind of there's a curiosity, a continuous curiosity and a humility about what we think we know yeah. and a curiosity. And I heard this need for curiosity in both Carl's and Keith's answer that we stay in this place of humility and as these things are knocking are we approaching them with curiosity and a level of humility versus entrenching entrenching ourselves in judgment and closing down and closing off from that that is that spirit of curiosity that mindset of curiosity and openness to what is new is just such an accelerant for the journey you know before we get off scott th- thank you for your commitment on this podcast I, I carl i'm sure i'm echoing this for carl but thank you what what an honor and a blast to 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 be a part of this and and just what you're doing collectively across these episodes is a contribution to the field. You, you know, I'm it's it's so much fun. Oh well, thank so you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Dave, Dave was my first guest, and that that episode was called "I Have a Fear." And, <laughs> and he said, I have a fear that all this stuff we're doing isn't really making a difference. And that really, in a nice way, kind of set a tone for this journey and these conversations and explorations. And uh, I'm, I'm so thankful for the experience because it's been one of great learning. And, and it's made me feel very humble as to what still needs to be learned. But it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. And so really quick, how can individuals 
get in touch with you. We will put all of these links in the show notes. But Keith, Carl, how can people learn more about your work and learn more about you? Uh, for me, you can go to Leaders Lyceum, L-Y-C-E-U-M.com. And I can get you can connect with me there. I'm on uh, LinkedIn, just Keith Eigel, um, E-I-G-E-L. Email address is long, but it's Keith.Eigel at LeadersLyceum.com. I'll let people figure out how to, hey, that'll be in the show notes. Yeah, so yeah. Lo- love to talk to people. Carl, you? Yeah, it's it's basically the same. My email at, at Emory, which is carl.coonert at emory.edu. And uh, I'm on LinkedIn as well. Great. Gentlemen, Dave, that was an awesome wrap up. Great questions. Thank you, sir, for joining us today. Keith, Carl, thank you so much for the good work that you do. We really, really appreciate it. And it's core to how we're thinking about this work. Literally, we're meeting later today and we will reflect on this conversation and it'll be woven into what we write about in the coming months. So we can't thank you enough for your good work. It's an honor, Scott. Keep in thank touch, you. Scott. Thank you. Okay. Be well. What a really fun conversation with, well, first I need to thank Dave Rush for co-hosting, tying it all up in a bow at the end there. That was awesome. And, uh, you know, the work of Carl Kuhnert and uh, Keith Eigel, I just have a great amount of respect for. Uh, They have this incredible book. If you have not read it, it's called The Map. You can go to the show notes and learn a little bit more. But they're doing this really nice job of trying to think through how we help people progress through these stages of development, operationalizing some of that work of Robert Keegan. And and for that, I just have great respect because they are in the field doing the work and trying to help prepare individuals to be more successful in these just incredibly demanding roles. So, of course, check out leaderslyceum.com. Uh, check out Keith Eigel's podcast, Growing as Grownups. It's an incredible listen. And uh, if you have a passion for this topic, you can learn more there. Be well, everyone. Take care. Next up, we have Bill Torbert, who also has been exploring this topic of adult development. And I'm excited for you to hear that conversation as well. Bye-bye. You have just finished another episode of Practical Wisdom for Leaders with Scott Allen. To contact me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and LinkedIn, so let's connect. Now, if you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. One final nod to our sponsors, the International Leadership Association and the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.